0: Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Hope everybody's doing okay. Let me get into it here. I have written another Substack article for this month. In fact, I'm also going to put together one more probably, maybe even two more. I'm not quite sure. December's kind of a fun month to write. Lots of things happening. And of course, it's kind of typically the month where a lot of people start making predictions about what's going to happen the coming year. Me personally, I'm going to stay away from that one this year. Although if you go back a year ago, I wrote an article that was uh, along those same lines, basically making a bullet pointed list of what I thought was going to happen in 2023. Pretty much every single thing occurred for the most part, except for the fact that the shots never got pulled off of the market. I was kind of expecting that to happen, although I would say the next best thing occurred, which is more people have woken up to the fact that the shots are killing people, and uh, less people are taking them now more than ever, which is very good. But either way, uh, my most recent Substack article is titled "The Jewish Lobby on American Campuses: Spying, Treason, and Bolshevism by Jewish Student Organizations and the Lobby That Controls Them." Again, I I watched the documentary "The Lobby." which I highly recommend, and I link it in the uh, actual article itself in in at least two places. So it can be viewed in four separate parts on both BitChute and Rumble, but I link both of those, again, in the article itself. It it truly is mandatory viewing for anybody who listens to this show and anybody who reads my substack. Uh, Every American should watch The Lobby and, and watch what is revealed certainly on college campuses university campuses but also within congress and how they all work together and control one another even jewish students are being used and and the jewish students that are subverting free speech and slandering people and engaging in bolshevik tactics i mean they're so foolish because they are the useful idiots also they too are being used by the jewish lobby to a, certainly to a great extent. And they even say so. I mean, the people running the show clearly state that they really don't care what happens on college campuses, just as long as the bigger picture gets met. And as long as the bigger needs that they have and the bigger goals that they have get met. So I, I, I basically, well, yeah, I I watched all four parts. I took some notes and I honed in specifically on what goes on, on some of these campuses. And then I highlight a couple of particular groups, of course, that exist on college campuses. But I highly recommend giving that article a read, and hopefully that's a nice springboard for you to actually watch the lobby. Again, it's about three hours long, a little bit over three hours long, and it's well worth it. So there you go. Okay. There's one other thing, too, within that article, which I found to be rather funny and pretty much proves proves my point. That censorship exists, and certainly censor, censorship rather on the uh, on the very topic of calling anyone a, a Jewish terrorist, or even saying that phrase, or getting people to understand that Jewish terrorist organizations exist. Endless people seem to believe that this is not true. And I have lots of audio in this episode that I want to play, but that pretty much proved this point and proved this ongoing mission that continues to exist here in ostracizing Christians and ostracizing even Muslims, of which, of course, I I don't agree with unless they become Christians in some way. But either way, at the end of the substack, if you actually listen to it on the app, the female robot voice who reads it to you, at the end of the article, they actually skip over the phrase Jewish terrorist organization. So. Here's basically what I have, and in fact, I'll play it for you to to prove my point. I end the article with these two sort of very small paragraphs here. I say, fortunately, Jewish influence is drying up. The spotlight is on them now more than ever, and Americans are becoming less tolerant because Americans are becoming more knowledgeable of the Jewish Zionistic terrorist footprint. And then the last couple of sentences in the article state, don't believe me? Watch the lobby for yourself. The Jewish terroristic footprint is far bigger and far worse than you can possibly imagine. Now here's what I want to do. I want to play you the audio version of the Substack so you can hear the female robot voice and see if you can't catch which part they purposefully leave out. I mean, (laughs) Substack, Substack is actually censoring the term that I have here, which is Jewish terroristic footprint or the Jew- Jewish terroristic footprint. They don't even say it. In fact, the first time I heard it, they skipped over me saying, Watch the lobby for yourself. It's beyond strange, but again, it's censorship. So give this a listen in three, two, one.
1: Fortunately, Jewish influence is drying up. The spotlight is on them now more than ever and Americans are becoming less tolerant because Americans are becoming more knowledgeable of the Jewish-slash-Zionistic-terrorist footprint. Don't believe me. Watch the lobby. Their footprint is far bigger and far worse than you can possibly imagine.
0: See what I mean? They said it earlier. They said it in the paragraph earlier. They said Jewish-Zionistic-terrorist footprint and actually said that, but in the last sentence, they don't say it. They say they. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you can't make it up. I think it's hilarious. I think it's absolutely hilarious. They'll say it in the paragraph before, but they won't say it in the last sentence. It's beyond weird. But it makes you wonder, again, is Substack in on this to some extent? Certainly the AI has some, some bit of control over what gets said and what doesn't. But either way, that's why I recommend you know, when it comes to Substack, that you actually read the articles the, the best that you can, because if you're just listening to it now on audio, uh, you know, the voice is going to skip over what it doesn't want to read. <laughs> it's rather strange. It would make me wonder if I wrote an entire article and all I said throughout the entire thing was Jewish terroristic footprint or Jewish terrorist organization. And if, I, if that was the entire article, would it even read it? Or would it just go from the title of the article down to my bio at the very bottom? I'm not entirely sure. Either way, again, I I highly recommend watching the lobby. It really is mandatory viewing. And I'm not kidding when I say this. When you watch the first 10 minutes, I mean, your jaw is going to be wide open. Now, I knew that this influence existed. The only difference in the real shocking and insidious part was I had no idea that the jewish organizations and student led organizations that exist on college and university campuses had quite the reach that they have and had the i would say uh oh i don't know what you would call it agency and conference influence and along with all of the political action committees that exist in america and certainly in foreign countries which i state in the article basically if you have A Jewish, or even probably a Muslim, and other organizations that exist on campus, perhaps not Christian necessarily, but all these other religions, then they're direct, I mean, they have direct ties to foreign government. They have direct ties to the agencies that exist within America that work for foreign governments. They're spy operations. They're openly engaging consistently in psychological operations to trick people. And to keep people from understanding the truth, let alone thinking for themselves. It's really disgusting. So, again, if you get some time this weekend, I do highly recommend watching The Lobby. It really is overwhelming. And uh, it's a bit depressing because, again, you're trying to wrap your arms around something and trying to get control of something. And once you watch this, you're going to say, oh my God, you know, these organizations are openly engaging in treason on the grounds and within the borders of the United States and nobody's arresting them and nobody's even investigating these groups for what they're doing which let's face it they're trying to subvert american interests and they're trying to subvert the citizens of the United States it it can't it can't become clearer that it's treason but again they use all of their bolshevik tactics and they attack people and they Put their names and addresses and phone numbers out there for everybody to see just like i've brought up of course over the past couple of weeks here you know all of the business about students on campus driving these trucks around specifically harvard university's campus and and others i'm sure with individuals names and faces and addresses and phone numbers and what they've allegedly done and you know trying to dox these people and humiliate them the best that they can but no one's asking the question again. Who owns the truck? Who's driving the truck? The fact is, is that it's Jewish organizations who own the truck. It's Jewish organizations that are that are driving the truck, and it's Jewish students that are driving the truck. And this leads me to my next my next point in my next uh, piece of audio here. And let me do my best to set this up because again, I I pretty much mentioned it in some previous episodes. Certainly with Elise Stefanik and you know those those particular congressional hearings that were taking place last week that it doesn't matter what the hearing is about all that these politicians are doing in particular the ones on the right now the vast majority of the ones on the right which by the way is also brought up in a in the lobby that what you're going to see is is that the zionistic support and support for israel pretty much lies solely with the right there are plenty on the left that support it too which, of course, you're seeing in the uh, Ukraine—you know, support for Ukraine on the Democrats and support for Israel on the right from the Republicans and that entire charade and paradigm. They're supporting the same people. They're supporting the same criminals. That's what they're supporting. They're not supporting the individual free citizen who maybe just happens to be Jewish but isn't a criminal they're supporting the criminal organizations that run both of those countries, which just so happen to be Jewish. So with all of that said, in this particular judicial Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, there are at least two judicial nominees that are up for a federal judgeship. The one that you're going to hear be attacked is an individual by the name of Adil Abdullah Manji, if I'm saying his name right. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. The guy is Pakistani. I don't know anything about him. I don't know anything about his history. I watched some of his testimony and some of the questioning that that he was having to deal with. He seems remarkably polite and, and rather straightforward. The sad part was, is that every Republican senator, for the most part, was going after this guy and they were i mean th- they were asking him about things for which he knows nothing about they were asking him about people middle eastern individuals who are alleged terrorists and he knows nothing about them i mean it's quite ridiculous they're looking at a pakistani american who's a citizen who's seeking to become a judge in the uh let's see which circuit is it third circuit and they're basically saying, you know, do you know who these people are? or Why, why is it that, uh, you know, you, the university that you sat on a board of, you know, complimented these people or, or had them show up at, at, at the campus as guests? And he goes, look, I didn't know anything about this. I don't know who these people are because I'm not in charge of scheduling anything. This is not what I do. I, I find it amazing that they're getting away with looking at a Pakistani man. And they're basically saying, why are you associating with all these Middle Eastern terrorists? Which clearly he isn't. It's beyond evident. I mean, they might as well be yelling at him, I kid you not, it's it's this absurd. They might as well be yelling at him and asking him if he rides a camel to work. Do you ride a camel to work? Because you look like you ride a camel to work. I mean, that's basically how they're treating this guy. And again, they throw in 9-11, they throw in uh, mass rapes of of uh, of Jews on on October seventh. It's beyond crazy. They're not even hearing themselves. They all sound like Elise Stefanik now, Josh Hawley, uh, Senator Kennedy, Senator Cruz. All of them. They all sound completely unhinged. And I'm going to play Josh Hawley's audio. So this entire clip is seven minutes and fifty six seconds you're going to hear Josh Hawley again just go off the rails he sounds completely irrational and again even Ted Cruz was asking him very similar questions they're basically asking him all the same questions they're they're saying you know does does israel have the right to be a country are they a colonialist people did they you know did they kill the palestinians to take control of their to take control of israel the answer to all of those of course is yes And I wish that this guy who's testifying, this Pakistani wannabe judge, I wish that he would have just said yes. I wish he would have actually told the truth. I wish he would have said anti-Semitism is a made-up word from the 1800s. As it turns out, the history of Israel is it used to be called Palestine, and before that, it was called lots of other things. And then, of course, Jews resettled there because of the banking cartel and and numerous Freemasonic governments, and they moved many Jews there and, of course, gave them their own military and a thousand other things, and then they started to slaughter Palestinians who were living there long before them. Again, you have to understand that government and these senators and these politicians don't want you to know the truth about history. None of them do. They're always ramming home these Zionistic talking points in this false history because that's what they want you to believe. But if you know what the real history is, that's when you can hear the hypocrisy in these individuals and you can hear how controlled they are, and they truly are. I mean, they are controlled by the lobby. So I'm going to play Josh Holly here, give this a listen again. It runs for about seven or eight minutes. Here we go. Three, two, one.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to the nominees. Thanks for being here. Mr. Mungi, if I could just start with you, I just want to make sure I understood your answers to my colleagues and sitting, including Senator Cruz. Let me, let me just read you something. I just want to know if you, if you agree with this or not, this should be simple. Here's a statement. The demand to center Israel's right to self-defense, that's in square, scare quotes, self-defense erases the colonial context and delegitimizes the Palestinian right to resistance. We are in awe of the Palestinian struggle to resist violent occupation, removal, erasure, and the expansion of Israeli settler colonialism. Do you agree with that? Yes or no? I realize you didn't write it, and you may not know who the author is. may never have heard of these people before. I just want to know, does this represent your view? Yes or no?
0: I'm going to jump in real quick right off right out of the gate here. My apologies. One of the things again that they do, which I I kind of said earlier if I, if I'm not mistaken, but they're actually having him try to respond to things that he didn't even say. So th- they're reading just these blanket statements that they claim are from other people and other authors and then looking at this guy and going, "Do you agree with that?" It has nothing to do with why he's there. But this should tell you again that all of these politicians are bought and sold. They all got the memo. No matter who's testifying in front of you, ask them about Israel, ask them about Jews, and ask them whether or not they support them or not. Because if they don't, then as far as these senators are concerned, you're immediately disqualified. That right there is the mafia. It's that simple. Our government is the mafia. These individuals are the mafia. It doesn't matter what aisle they, you know, what side of the aisle they sit on. These are the enemy of the people, right here. So I'm going to continue, and you can hear his answer. And again, he's rather polite, and he basically again says, "What does this have anything to do with me?" So here we go. Three, two, one.
3: Center any attempt to justify what happened on October seventh.
2: I have absolutely. No, well, That's not the context here. This is, this is talking about any discussion of Israel's right to self-defense erases the colonial context. It's calling Israel a colonial state. So could we just answer my question? Do you, do you agree with this, yes or no?
3: Senator, I don't claim to be an expert on the Middle East. Uh, I, I don't have the historic or regional sounds expertise. sounds like a maybe.
2: That's a maybe? Maybe you agree? Can we, no. can we get a yes or a no?
3: It's a this is a policy question or a question for our Well, no, wait, experts. wait.
2: What's, I don't. That's what I don't understand. By the way, this was written by the director of the center you sat on the board of that you advised. This is the director, not some random professor. The director who published it in an open letter. So when you say it's a policy, what what's the policy about calling Israel a violent settler colonial estate? What? Why is that a policy question?
3: Senator, that is not an, uh, a statement that I had any involvement.
2: Okay, good. So would you, would you condemn it then? You say this does not represent your views.
3: Senator, I have no basis as a judicial nominee to cost views on the Middle East. Uh, or uh, What does not, or does see, not this happen is, This is
2: what, we're not, you're not answering my question. I'm asking you whether this individual who said that Israel was a violent, settler, colonial state, I'm just trying to get you to say, do you agree with that or not? And you ha- I've asked you now four different times, four different ways. You're not answering me. Why is that? Why can't you just say, no, I don't agree with this? Let's try again.
3: Yeah.
2: Do you agree with this statement, yes or no?
3: Senator, in order to agree or disagree with any statement, I need to have a sufficient factual
2: background to assess it. So you, in other words, you you can't say whether or not Israel is a violent colonial state. You think that that's that's a difficult question? God.
3: That is not an issue with which I have any expertise. Is the
2: Holocaust also a difficult question? Does that need context? No. Is that a policy question?
3: I am quite happy to address the Holocaust, Senator.
2: Why aren't you happy to address this then? Why aren't you, why is it that an individual in the center that you directed who calls Israel, a violent, colonialist state. Those are racist comments. Why can't you condemn that? I don't understand it. You you won't answer my questions. You won't answer Senator Cruz's questions. You wouldn't answer Senator Kennedy's questions. I don't understand why this is complicated. Senator, I'm Pakistani. I didn't grow up in the Middle East. I didn't either. I, I didn't either. But that doesn't mean that I can't say that somebody who says that a Jewish state is a violent, colonialist enterprise is wrong. This isn't a policy question. It's a moral question. This is a moral issue.
3: Senator, I am not in a position to make any policy pronouncements about actions in the Middle East.
2: Does Israel have a right to exist? Yes. Should, should American Jews be safe in their homes and on their campuses? Senator, there is no Yes one. or no, please. Spare me the lectures. Yes or no. Did you advise against this letter? You sat on the advisory board. Did you advise against it? I never even heard of that letter. How is that possible? What did you do on this board for all these years? This was years before you left it. It's an advisory board that met once a
3: year to talk about academic
2: research. Do you not think it's relevant to the setting in the academy that Jewish students might feel unsafe when they have a tenured professor who's the director of a center saying that Israel is a violent colonial estate you think that may not have an effect on the educational environment
3: senator i abhor abhor
2: but you didn't care to look into it may i respond but you've responded i've heard your answers and they're all they're all move over here look over here you're not answering any of my questions and i can't figure out why I, i can't figure out why you won't just say that this was wrong so you didn't advise against it you didn't condemn it You didn't look into the center's activities. Do you you regret that? Do you regret not at the time taking a moral stand against these, frankly, racist condemnations of Jewish Americans, Jewish people in the state of Israel? Do you think it was wrong for you to be silent?
3: Senator, I didn't know
2: anything about it. Why didn't you? Didn't you have a moral obligation to know about a center that you sat on the board of for years whose director was calling Jewish people? colonialist violent settlers do you not have a moral obligation to know and say something
3: that is not the function of an academic advisory board but i abhor but it, it is the, the function
2: of a, of a responsible jurist and a responsible citizen and i would just suggest to you that you failed it and your inability to just say this was wrong this shouldn't have been said this this kind of language and rhetoric is what has led directly To Jewish American students now being called out in on campuses, in classrooms, told to stand up and go and stand in a corner because they need to feel what it's like to be colonized. I'm sure you've seen the reports
4: of this happening across the country. This is happening now. Senator, your time's expired. Mr. Manji, would you like to complete an answer?
5: Thank you, Chair Gerbin. Any acts of anti Semitism?
3: Or any bigotry, including anti-Muslim bigotry, on college on college campuses, is abhorrent. My children will be going to universities. I want them to feel safe, and I want the children of my Jewish friends and colleagues to feel safe.
2: Do well, you think you'll take a greater interest when your children are on campus, maybe, than you did for the last three years?
4: Senator, your time has expired. Uh, I ask unanimous consent to enter into the record a letter received December 8, twenty twenty-three, addressed to me, Senator Graham, and all committee members. It reads in part, on behalf of the 210,000 advocates of the National Council of Jewish Women, I'm writing in support of the nominee, nomination of Adil Manji to the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. It goes on to say, the National Council of Jewish Women believes the judiciary is best served by qualified judges who are fair-minded, independent, reflect the diversity of our nation. Adil Manji is just such a nominee. We strongly urge you to move expeditiously to prove this nomination and support subsequent confirmation by the full Senate. I am sorry that you have been subjected to the suggestion that you are somehow anti-Semitic or insensitive. This letter indicates those people who looked at your record feel just the opposite.
0: Okay, now here's the thing, and I want to make this abundantly clear. I don't support any of the people that you just heard. <laughs> okay, I don't support any of them not any of them. None of them are telling the truth. They're all lying. The wannabe judge is playing nice on particular issues for which he knows far more about, I'm sure, than Senator Hawley does clearly, but he's playing nice because he wants the position of a judge. He's going up there and he's compromising his own knowledge and his own integrity. He could tell the truth. He's choosing not to because he wants to make it up a notch in the old social status, so he thinks. You have to keep in mind a, a very critical point here. You cannot make your way to those levels of influence, so to speak, and, and actually hold on to those positions without being immoral. So the hypocrisy of Hawley is palpable. For him to say something like, this is a moral issue. Jews aren't colonialists, and they didn't take over, uh, you know, Palestine, and, and they have a right to exist in, in what is their homeland, Israel, and blah, blah, blah. That's completely inaccurate from a historic standpoint. Completely and historically inaccurate. But you can't tell him that. I mean, you could, but you're not going to get the votes, and you're not going to get, you know, what it is that you're looking for. And let's face it, in almost every single issue, when it comes to the Senate Judiciary Committee, they almost always vote on party lines, almost all of the time. In particular, when you get a Pakistani man in there and they start throwing around 9 11 or the Holocaust or, you know, pilots on planes hitting towers. I mean, when you start bringing things like that up, they've already made up their mind, they already know that they're going to vote against you. And they're just trying to get a rise out of you and and try to get these individuals to get caught in saying something that can be used against them in the future. It's a Bolshevik tactic. So people have to understand, too, that the lobby, the Jewish terroristic lobby, not only owns these politicians, but they train them. They train them. And they've been trained in this approach and in these tactics for a very long time. Uh, the vast majority of the, I actually learned this a long time ago, but the vast majority of the legal aides that sit behind these senators and congressmen and women during these congressional hearings and, and senatorial hearings, most of them happen to be Jewish lawyers. And they're assigned to these people. And then, of course, they work for them. And they're the ones that are looking up all of this information. They're the ones that are Associated with these organizations. And they're the ones that get the memos. They're the ones that get the emails that say, okay, we got this Pakistani guy coming in here who who wants to be a judge. Let's grill him and let's dig up some dirt on him about one of his co workers who wrote a letter talking about how Jews are colonialists in Palestine. And that even Palestinians in Gaza have the right to defend themselves. But we need to use that against him as as much as we possibly can. And then again, just sit there and be able to take the fact that Senator Josh Hawley just basically said that Palestinians in Gaza don't have the right to defend themselves. Because that's basically what he just said. That right there should tell you who owns these people. This is the problem. And yeah. There is massive grooming that takes place on college and university campuses to again create this division when the truth is remarkably objective. Now, again, I'm not a biblical scholar and I'm certainly not a scholar of numerous religions. However, I do know this Christianity doesn't call for the murder of Jews or Muslims, but Judaism does. And so does Islam. They call for the murder of anybody who isn't them. And if you want a quick 10 minute lesson on that fact, certainly from the Jewish perspective, go back and watch the last war video. Toward the end, it's certainly within the last, I'd say, 15 minutes or so, there's a 10 minute swath of of video there that is an individual going through parts of the Talmud. And it really is a very quick lesson in the word usage of the Talmud. And I remember reading a very long time ago a post that someone had written about the Talmud. It was a lengthy post, and it was very well done. But they basically said, I read the Talmud so that you don't have to. Here are my summary points on the Talmud. And they went through it. And what exists in the Talmud, and you'll even pick up on this in that particular video if you if you choose to go watch it, is they basically create sin, and they make some of the most outlandish statements you could possibly imagine, but then they write in other books, like the Jewish Encyclopedia, which is a real thing, and that exists, but they write in it their excuses for engaging in that sin, right down to having sex with little boys, and what that means, and why you can get away with it and why it's not a sin, but it is a sin if you do this, but it's not a sin if you do that. They, they create consistently a level of inconsistency that is astounding. And that level of inconsistency and that level of hypocrisy is exactly what we're seeing on a constant basis with this entire question that is existing in the spotlight right now. And again, if you can pick up on it, and it's patently obvious, I think, but if you can pick up on it, it's everywhere. Again, these individuals and these politicians will openly try to get people to believe that no one ever attacks Muslim students, and if they are attacked, well, it must be whites that are doing it, or it must be Christians that are doing it, but it's never Jews. See, that, that's the interesting part about this. They themselves, who are owned by the lobby, would never say that there are Jewish terrorist organizations and Bolshevik organizations that exist on college campuses. They'll never mention it. Not ever. And that right there should tell everybody who owns them and who blackmails them. I mean, again, what's Josh Hawley really done in his life? Where did he come from? He was a lawyer in Missouri, he made his way up the ladder. Somebody's got something on him, whether it's kid touching, money laundering, something. They dangled you know, a, a little piece of ass in front of him that's a little too young, below that age of 18, and what did he do? I'm making an allegation here, allegedly, allegedly. My, my entire point is, is that these people are owned and they're blackmailed, and it's all of them. Durbin's one of the worst. So is Ted Cruz. I'd like to know what they have on all these people, including Senator T- uh, Ted Kennedy. I mean, he looks like an old lesbian, and he's got some funny one liners and that, oh, oh, shucks, you know, Southern mentality. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Even he was borderline crying about 9 11 to this Pakistani judge or this wannabe judge. And I'm saying to myself, what does he have to do with 9 11? Again, they're holding up pictures of like these Middle Eastern quote unquote terrorists. And they're going, "You support these people." I mean, it's beyond ridiculous. It's just beyond absurd. So l- let me keep going down this this uh, you know, Washington, DC. government train of thought here. They actually did this too the other day. I mean, again, y- you can't make this up. They actually made a ruling in the House of Representatives the other day on a motion to call for the firing. Of the Harvard president and the president of MIT. They actually did this. 219 Republicans voted yes, one voted no. I'm hoping that was massey. It probably was. And then 84 Democrats voted yes to call for the to call for their firing. And 125 voted no. Three voted president present for Democrats, one was a no vote and there was one Republican that was a no vote. But you had 219 Republicans out of 221 Republicans vote yes. What does this have to do with them? Why does this matter? This is not, this is not an affair that, 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 should, that they should be concerned with, but they are, and they're making themselves concerned with it because they're owned. The lobby owns these people. There's no doubt about that. But again, they're trying to normalize this kind of irrational thought, thinking that we, the American citizens, can't see through it. Well, we can see right through it perfectly. We know what they're doing. And it, of course, it doesn't work on the likes of us. Now let me play this again. <laughs> you, can't, you can't make this up. Here's Elise Stefanik. This is a recent comment from her. She walks up into that little media room that Congress is associated with, that Nancy Pelosi and all these you know, House people will come in and, and speak. This is only a couple of minutes long. But Elise Stefanik walks in, borderline tears again, and she goes, well, I, I used to go to Harvard and the Harvard motto is this, which is basically truth. It's the word truth in Latin, veritas. I find that remarkably ironic that that comes out of her mouth because it's not the truth she's interested in. So let's listen to her hypocrisy in this two minute clip in three, two, one.
5: Good morning. A point of personal privilege. There is a reason why the testimony at the Education and Workforce Committee garnered 1 billion views worldwide. And it's because those university presidents made history by putting the most morally bankrupt testimony into the congressional record, and the world saw it. As a Harvard graduate, I'm reminded of Harvard's motto, Veritas, which goes back, and it's older than the founding of our country. It goes back to the 1640s. In addition, the motto was Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ and the church. Larry Summers, who was president of Harvard when I was an undergrad, talked about the meaning of Veritas is divine truth moral truth. Let me be clear, Veritas does not depend on the context. This is a moral failure of Harvard's leadership and higher education leadership at the highest levels. And the only change they have made to their code of conduct, where they failed to condemn calls for genocide of the Jewish people, the only update to the code of conduct is to allow a plagiarist as the president of Harvard.
0: The irony is palpable; it really is. Again, to have Elise Stefanik get up there and talk about Christ and the truth, and then of course bend all of that to fit her, you know, contrived narrative, so to speak, is beyond ridiculous. She's an absolute embarrassment. I can't even look at her face. I mean, she's just. She doesn't have an honest bone in her body. She got the memo, too. They're all following orders. It's just so gross. And then, of course, calling her a plagiarist immediately and and throwing that around. She may be. I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. What I do know is that the double standard is beyond evident. There's a spotlight on the double standard right now. And that, again, is all that I'm trying to point out here. Is that all of these people are bought and sold? All of these people are over emotional. None of them are thinking. They really do believe that they're the arbiters of truth, and that they control you. I want to see people like Elise Stefanik and the rest of these congressmen, uh, men and women, and, and senators. I want them all gone. I want them all gone. Again, did Elise Stefanik vote to uh, to approve the election? Of Joe Biden? If so, that should disqualify her immediately as being a representative in the United States government. Again, I'm an abolitionist. I would like the United States government to cease to exist. I would like these congressmen and women to hit the bricks, be tried for the for the crimes that they've engaged in, whether it be financial crimes or kid touching or backdoor deals or whatever it may be, and then have the appropriate punishment be carried out on these people. Now, that leads me to this, too, and then I'm going to get into some other education-related things. But again, last week, Christopher Ray was testifying in front of the Senate and the House on a variety of issues. They were asking him a number of different questions, and wouldn't you know it, almost all of them had something to do with terrorism, quote-unquote, and what terrorism looks like. And, you know, are there terrorist cells that exist in the United States, and are we at a heightened level of emergency because of alleged terrorism? They're doing the same. I mean, I I was alive during 9-11, and unfortunately, I bought the initial narrative, and I know better now. What's interesting is, is that they're doing the same kinds of things now that they did back then. They're stirring the pot against Middle Easterners whose skin happens to be dark, and they're, they're propping up Jews as much as they possibly can while at the exact same time hating on white people and claiming again that they are Christians when in fact it's Jewish individuals who go to synagogue who are the ones that are talking about Christ and everything else. Well, you can't have it both ways. Again, wh- which one of those do you support? But my point is is that the narrative rollout that's taking place here is almost as if we're about to go to war. Now we're already at war on a variety of issues, but it's almost as if they're about to manufacture themselves a good old false flag right here on our, on our soil. And who do you think they're going to blame? Are they going to blame Jewish terrorist organizations? No. Are they going to blame Christians? No. Nope. They're setting up the entire thing, the whole Hegelian dialectic, for going after Middle Eastern Muslims yet again. Now, we can pontificate a little bit as to who they would attack. Would they attack a church and then just say that it was Muslims? Would they attack a synagogue and just say that it was Muslims that did it? Probably. But who would actually be behind it? Well, the quote unquote deep state would imply that the Jewish lobby would have something to do with it because they do this kind of thing for sport, as I say in the Substack article. They do this for fun. They get paid to do this. I mean, that's how they operate, that's how they still exist. They're funded to create false flags and then make up stories about things that they will tell other people. That another group was responsible when in fact it was them that was responsible. And then you have the FBI director, quote unquote, verifying that there might be a Hamas attack on an Israeli target in the United States and that this will cause us to do other things and whatever else. The whole thing is completely constructed in order to prop up the Jewish lobby and eliminate everybody else. And it's our own government participating in it. And it's the own selected slash elected officials participating in it. That's why they're traitors. They're all traitors. All of them. Hawley, Durbin, uh, Hirono. I mean, you, White House. You can pick a senator or a congressman or woman. It doesn't matter. Massey in Congress, frankly, Massey seems to be like the only guy with a—you know his head on his shoulders. But who knows? I think he's the only one voting against all of this stuff because he knows that it has nothing to do with what's actually happening. And Massey's on Gab. (laughs) So (laughs) that should tell you something. I mean, Massey seems to know what's going on. But this is just wild. They're clearly setting up the narrative for something to occur here. And we've been, again, endless people have been talking about this for a very long time. They've been talking about what's myself included what's going to happen between again 2023 and by election day 2024 what are they actually going to do is there going to be a false flag attack the media is going to run with it the media is going to believe it what i would hope would happen is this i hope that whatever happens it's actually controlled by the good guys to some extent to make all of these politicians back themselves into a corner to where they don't even know who to support or what to support. Because let's face it, if it's a Christian church, let's let's play out a hypothetical very quickly. What if it really is a terrorist Jewish organization that carries this out and they make that public? And what if that Jewish terrorist organization that exists in the United States actually does make a legitimate attack either against a mosque or against a Catholic church or or, or a Christian establishment, then what? What are all these senators and all these congressmen and women going to do and say then? I bet they'd be as tight-lipped as humanly possible. That'd be my guess. Because as I say in the Substack article, when was the last time you heard the phrase, Jewish terrorist organization? Rarely to never. So again, one of the things that all of those congressmen and women and, and senators and, and whom, whomever else in Washington want you to believe, they don't want you to believe for, the, for, for a single minute that there is or are Jewish terrorist organizations, conferences, committees, subcommittees, and so on and so on. That exists in the United States. Because they want you to believe that they're always the victims of everything. Which means by default they could never be responsible for anything. So, head on a swivel regarding all of this as far as I'm concerned. Because whatever comes down the line, I'm telling you, it's going to be manufactured completely. It's going to be fake. Real people may end up getting killed. But there's no way that anybody should believe the initial narrative. And again, one last thing on the Senate stuff, and then I I promise I'm going to move on. I couldn't believe that Senator Kennedy, I should almost play the audio, but I'm not going to, but he was almost crying about October 7th when he was talking to that Pakistani judge. He was just like, they were raping and beheading people on October 7th. What proof does anybody have of any of that? They have none. That's one of the things again that I haven't heard these people say when they're testifying in front of these people is they've never looked at them and said, "I wasn't there. How do I know what happened? Because the congressmen and women and the senators, of course, just like you heard Holly say, they would come back at them and say, "Well, this has been widely reported. This has been widely reported. How do you not know? What went on? It's been widely reported, to which your response would have to be back to the senator or whoever's asking you the question, do you believe reporters? Do you believe the media? Do you believe government? Again, you have these senators questioning Ray and the FBI, which would imply that they don't trust government organizations as senators themselves. But they want you to trust them. They want you to believe them. And if they say something as a senator or a congressman or woman, they want you as the public to believe everything they say. And I say, no, we don't believe any of you on anything ever. If you say it's sunny out, I'm going to think you're a liar. And I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I haven't been outside yet. I don't believe you. But let me go take a look. And then you go outside and you have yourself a little peek. Everybody has to do that now. All of the time. Everybody has to think for themselves all of the time. You cannot trust anything that these people say. The lobby has a grip on them that is a death grip, and they're never going to let go. And, of course, they'll never admit it either. Because if they admit it, well, then the cat's out of the bag. Okay. Moving on. Education related stuff. I do have more audio that I want to play by the way. Uh, I think I have a piece of audio right here with this first story, but I have some audio from some nurses that come from Dr. Macus's Substack that you've got to hear. And I'm going to play uh some clips from that here in a little bit, so stay tuned. Uh here we go. Sicily sent me this from New Mexico, absolutely incredible. God bless this person. It's from Albuquerque News. QR I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, krqe news dot com video. Man dressed as Grinch tells kids at New Mexico school that Santa is fake, Jesus is real. Not all heroes wear capes, ladies and gentlemen. Give this audio a listen in three, two, one.
2: A costume Grinch showed up in an Albuquerque elementary school this morning with a message some parents say could ruin Christmas. On the sign, that man was trying to convince children that Santa is not real. News 13's Jessica Salinas has reaction from parents.
6: Santa is fake, Jesus is real, is the sign the Grinch greeted students with today at Osuna Elementary School, as he set up right outside of the kindergarten entrance, upsetting parents.
5: To take that in front of little kids and try to destroy their wonder, destroy the magic of Christmas, it makes me, it makes my blood boil.
7: It kind of made me mad. Like, you have nothing better to do than to get up at 7.30 in the morning and post in front of a kindergarten. <laughs>
6: the Grinch spent about 45 minutes outside the school, walking up and down the sidewalk. Last week in Texas, there was a similar stunt with a costume Grinch set up outside a school. We did find through social media posts that the two incidents are connected. In a letter to parents, the principal said she was saddened by the stunt, calling it a nationwide movement, while saying the person behind the stunt was taunting children. Video shows parents confronting the Grinch, some asking if there was a better way to spread his message than at an elementary school.
3: Well, this is a great way, trust me. Jesus
2: said go into all the world, including all my and preach the gospel to every creature."
6: And some continued asking why. The Grinch dished back some mean-spirited replies. Well, if you
3: believe that, then you should go do it yourself.
6: Parents hope this Grinch doesn't steal the kids' Christmas cheer. I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't.
7: I have a kindergartner, and she's very excited about Christmas time and Santa, so I hope
2: it
6: doesn't. Jessica Salinas, KRQE, News 13.
2: That school principal sent a letter to parents explaining that the district and school police could not intervene because that protester was on the sidewalk, which is public property. Staff redirected students away from the protester to an alternate entrance.
0: I can't tell you how much I love this. This is arguably one of the best stories of the year as far as I'm concerned. It's absolutely incredible, and if there's anything, That proves the brainwashing in American society, it is that right there. I hope you heard the word usage that they were all saying throughout that entire news report. It's gonna ruin Christmas. This might ruin Christmas. How could this person? How could they? It's a time for Santa and presents, and I hope this doesn't ruin Christmas for my daughter because she's excited about Santa. And presents. That Santa and presents have become the focus of Christmas. I mean, it's appalling. It's absolutely disgusting. Again, the only person in the whole news report that mentioned Jesus and the birth of Jesus Christ was the guy holding the sign in the Grinch outfit. It's absolutely incredible. That that is what it takes in American society to wake up youth and wake up their brainwashed, brain-dead, mouth-breathing parents. is to actually stand outside of an elementary school with the sign telling the truth to have only endless individuals criticize that individual for telling the truth. It's disgusting. But again... In one fell swoop, I think that exemplifies the mental state of affairs in American society. That right there proves it without, without a doubt. I love it, though. I hope he keeps doing it. I hope he does it every day. You heard the news reporter say they can't arrest him. He's on public property on the sidewalk. He's not saying anything that's illegal. And again, they <laughs> what did the school do in typical fashion? In order to not expose anybody to the truth, they've decided to change the parent pickup, parent drop-off area to the back of the building instead of the front of the building so they can avoid the guy who's telling the truth with the sign in his hands. So again, if that doesn't also define the American K-12 school system in a nutshell, I don't, I don't know what else does. It's just incredible. It's incredible. God love that guy. God love him. He's the best. Not all heroes wear capes. I love it. I should add this too, that if, you know, if there are parents out there who are on the Santa train and and believing all of that, which again, we have to take this into consideration, and this is a very real thing, is that the lying and the brainwashing has to start early with children. That those fairy tales that get told, have to start early with kids because, again, who is it really distracting them from? So you got a fat guy in a beard, dressed in red, handing out gifts, flying around on a wooden sleigh with reindeer that can fly, and then shoving his, his, uh, his fat backside down a chimney in order to provide all of these magical gifts for everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, again, who is that distracting from really? It's distracting, of course, from the life of Jesus Christ, why he lived and why he died. That's the whole point. The same thing, of course, as we all know, happens on Easter a bunny that lays eggs and candy. It's all distraction, it's all a giant distraction. So, if you want to use the opportunity, in my humble opinion, to teach children about the realities of the time and, and the holiday and the day, Focus in on the acts and the charitable work of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was a real person. So focus in on that. Look him up. Look up the real stories. Don't just go to Wikipedia, but I mean, dive into it a little bit. Do a dig on St. Nicholas. And then, of course, Jesus Christ, and that should go without saying, and then explain that to children because that's the truth. Reindeer with, you know, one of them with a glowing nose and all that stuff, fun story, none of it's real, as we all know. So again, th- there are there are factual things that, that responsible parents can do with their children on a constant basis, but misleading them and then still sending them to a school district that's allowing for that kind of misleading, which, let's face it, is far worse than just Santa Claus with an American K-12 schools. But even so, you can see now how easy it is, I think, for endless children to be tricked for a lifetime. Not that they'll grow up and believe that Santa's real for a lifetime, but hopefully they maybe go back and say, well, why is it that we did all that stuff regarding Santa for all those years when we could have been doing something far more objective? And I'm not trying to ruin on the whole thing. You're talking to a guy who actually, as a kid, had an amazing guy show up and play Santa Claus for myself my brother and all our cousins when when we were young it was it was quite the routine i think i've described it on the show before but he was a friend of the family He's a friend of my grandparents and we would be opening up presents and then we would hear bells outside and we'd go what the hell's that you have to keep in mind this was central ohio uh you know and it was dark out on christmas eve and we're hearing these bells and we're going santa's here and then sure enough, he would walk right in through the door and there he was, large as life. I mean, it was a fun experience. It was cool. it was fake, but it, <laughs> but it was but it was but it was you know it was fun. But even with him there, we, we knew that we knew that it was about Jesus Christ, that it wasn't about him bringing a bag full of stuff and then driving away in a Toyota Corolla, which is what he, <laughs> which is what he did, my brother caught him and was like, "Why does Santa drive a Toyota Corolla?" And there you go. Rest his soul. He's no longer alive, this man. But, uh, you know, again, th- there's a nice balance that exists, but the blunt force trauma <laughs> of having a guy dress up like like the Grinch and hold a sign, I, I love it. I just love it. Just hit these families over the head with, with a dose of truth. And the first woman, by the way, in that report who was complaining She's got facial tattoos or I'm sorry facial piercings like you wouldn't believe with a giant butterfly tattooed on her neck right on the front of her neck taking up her whole neck. So I mean, you know, no offense, but when it comes to Parent of the Year awards, I'm not sure she's going to be at the top of the list. Okay. With that to the side for a minute, there's also this. If you need another reason to leave American K-12 schools, I give you exhibit double Z. Uh, this happened earlier this week. Down in Southeast Florida. This is from the New York Post. You got to get a load of this headline along with the Gateway Pundit's headline, which was even more ridiculous. It's titled Student Hospitalized After Horrifying Caught on Video Beatdown Near Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Now, this was a white student who was ganged up on by a handful of black students, was picked up, thrown to the ground. His head bashed up against the ground, suffered a fractured skull, he was kicked in the face, he was punched while he was down, kicked in the ribs. You name it, and then finally, about three individuals came to his aid to protect uh you know protect him from being murdered. This is assault and battery, and it's attempted murder, as far as I'm concerned. There's no doubt about that uh he he you know he he couldn't he couldn't defend himself here's the thing. The news media outlets are never calling these individuals who did the attacking black teenagers, because they all were. So what did the Gateway Pundit call them? The Gateway Pundit called them youths. That it was a gang of youths that attacked this white kid. No. No, let's be a little more specific. Not just youths, they all happen to be black. So there is that. And then of course here in the New York Post what do they call them youngsters landed the youngster in a hospital and was beaten by a gang of teens quote unquote that old headline teens teens did it again this this large gang of teens and youngsters and xyz nope it's not it's a gang of blacks attacking a white kid so Allow me a moment to talk about vigilance. If you send your kids to any American K-12 school and you don't teach them about vigilance and that these environments are dangerous by default, if they don't know to be vigilant or what vigilance means, they're not going to stand a chance in these environments. They won't. They will be hung out to dry. Their heads won't be on a swivel and I'll say it again, I've never been punched in the face. Not ever. Because I'm smart enough to be vigilant, know that we live in a dangerous world, and I've never stood close enough to anybody who even smelled like they wanted to punch me in the face. So again, is there a level of naivete among these quote-unquote teenagers who are getting assaulted regardless of race? Yes, no doubt about it. They believe that they can talk their way out of something, they can turn a blind eye, uh, you know, turn their back to individuals who want to attack, uh, uh, you know, attack them, a thousand other things. I played this particular audio, which was really just a video a, a very long time ago, but I remember it and you may remember it too. It was a trend that was taking place where blacks were walking up to whites in school environments by and large, and they were trying to get the white kids to call them the n-word or any other racial slur quote unquote or or whatever it is that they wanted you know th- them to say they just were they were egging these individuals on to get them to say something to then justify the actions of the minority student toward the white student keep in mind this never happened the other way around the flip side of that coin never existed it was never a white student who, looked, who walked up and was caught on a TikTok video or on cell phone footage, walking up to a black student and saying, call me a cracker, call me a honky, call me you know some other made-up name for, for white people. And then they do it, and then the white kid fights you know, and, and takes a swing at the person. That never happened the other way around. It was always blacks against whites. It was always blacks walking up to a white and saying, call me the N-word. Call me this, call me that. And then they, they look at him like, are you, are you on drugs? Are you high? What is wrong with you? What, go away. The problem is, is that in this particular scenario from at least a year ago, the white kid is sitting down and the black student is, is standing up to his right, addresses him. The white kid turns in his, in his cafeteria table seat, turns around, looks at him and, and says, I'm, I'm not going to do that and just keeps looking at him while he's sitting down. So the black student, student, the black criminal in this particular case, has the advantage because he's standing above him. And the white kid is sitting down with his arms to his side by and large, so his entire face is exposed. See, in a moment like that, you would have to stand up or stand up and walk away. Because if you do the attacking first, of course, you're the guilty party. But you would have, at the very least have to put distance between yourself and the person who's closed the space on you. This is vigilance. This is something that is not taught to people. This is unfortunate. Yes, it's taught to many, but it's not taught to many children who enter these kinds of environments, whether they be K-12 schools, colleges, you name it. You know, that there are things that you do and things you don't do, people you hang around and people you don't, uh, individ- crowds that you, that you go with and toward and crowds that you stay away from. And then, of course, if you find yourself in a particular area where you can't, of course, figure out who's there and what the motives are, and like I said, your head is on a swivel and you're consistently looking around, that would be a vigilant person. But that vigilant person would become overwhelmed with their surroundings that if they had any sense, they would eventually just leave. So I don't know what led up to this particular fight in Florida that was recently caught on, on video footage. I hope that they've been arrested. I've ho- I hope they've been charged, certainly with assault and battery. I hope they get sued in civil court for all of the hospital bills. I, I certainly hope that that happens because now the parents of those children who attack that white kid are on the hook for all of it and that's the way that it should be. But again, these environments are not safe for a variety of reasons. And if you're going to send them, which I don't recommend you do, certainly not within the next calendar year, because all hell's going to break loose in American schools here in the next calendar year, for a variety of reasons, not just illness related, of course, but the political nonsense and everything else, that you've got to teach them to be vigilant. They have to have their head on a swivel. They have to move from point A to point B with some spring in their step to make sure that they get away from particular groups and particular areas. Again, we have instincts. We have to listen to those instincts. We have to pay attention to them. We have to be tuned into what those are. But if we have calcified pineal glands, then we're not thinking very well, are we? And we're certainly not being vigilant, and we're certainly not listening to those instincts and letting those instincts take over. Because most instincts would say, there's a group of individuals over there that I don't typically hang out with. I need to stay away from them. And I need to make sure and put some distance between myself and them because, again, I can't be punched in the face if I'm not close enough to get punched in the face. So there you have it. Okay, school fights. I'll tell you what. And I, I'll be honest with you, and I've said this before, in my entire time being a school teacher for nine, nine and a half years, I never witnessed a physical altercation. I never witnessed a physical fight. A fight would occur in a bathroom a great distance from me, and then I would see the aftermath when somebody else had already intervened and broke it up, like another staff member or resource officer. But I never saw one break out in front of me. And I'm dead serious when I say that. And I consider myself rather lucky because I know what my response would have been. And I Walter mitted it many times through my head and ran those scenarios through my head. If a fight breaks out in my presence, what would I do and how would I react? And I know exactly what I would have done. I would have used it as a massive, uh, a massive teaching opportunity. I wouldn't have beaten you know, beaten anybody. I'm certain I wouldn't have done that. I probably would have subdued who I would have determined to be the guilty party as fast as humanly possible. But one of the scenarios that I actually had worked out, and I want you to sort of imagine this area if you can. In the middle school where I worked, there was a massive atrium, and it stretched almost the entire width of the building. And it was, again, at the front of the building for the most part, on the inside of the building. So by the front door, of course, were all the main offices, and then you would work your way through there, and then you would be out in this giant atrium, which of course had a giant staircase, and it went up three stories—one one story for each grade. Sixth grade was on the bottom level, uh, and most of the exploratory classes, like my health education class, were on were on the first level, and then you had seventh grade on the second level and eighth grade on the third level. On the first level, where my classroom was, I was the second classroom in a hallway that oversaw this entire atrium area, certainly a massive portion of it. And so I would stand outside of my room and I would always look out into that atrium every single day, standing by my doors, my students would come in. And I always ran it through my head that if I saw a fight break out, what would I do? If I saw a fight break out in that general area, how would I react and what would I do? Now, as you might imagine, I'm not a flight kind of person when it comes to an altercation of some kind. If I see something, I run toward it. Car accident, I run toward it uh you know somebody being hurt, I run toward it. a house on fire, I'd run towards it. I wouldn't even hesitate. I mean that switch gets clicked off in me and i and I go immediately. so that's what would have happened first is I would have run toward it. But what I had worked out in my head was, is, and this is kind of funny, <laughs> and I kind of wanted to do it because it would have been caught on film and I would have gotten a lot of people's attention, which would have been neat. But they had these giant flower pots, and I mean they were huge. Uh, you know, imagine like the size of your bed. Okay, they had these huge flower pots that were the size of a bed, and there were maybe like three or four of them in the atrium, right, kind of like right through the middle. Not quite as big as a bed, but you get what I'm saying. Anyway, it was my intention to then basically grab both guilty parties or one guilty party or whoever it was by the back of the neck and by the back of the shirt and then jump up on one of those flower pots and stand above them while I'm still holding on to them and get everybody's attention and start yelling at everybody who was in the atrium because again, this is where all the students congregated. And it was a huge mistake because they should have been going to class because that would have decreased the likelihood of a physical altercation if everybody just goes right to class. But this is how stupid again that the administration was. I'm getting off on a tangent, but you get what I'm saying. That 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 was a situational awareness thing that they never took into consideration. They were like they need to socialize Sean and we need to let them out there and socialize. I'm saying they don't socialize, they gossip, they make fun of each other, there's a borderline fight on a on a consistent basis I can I can sense it with my God-given instincts, but you're more concerned about them socializing instead of going straight to class. Either way, I would have grabbed them and then jumped up on the flower pot and shook both of them in front of everybody, separating them with my arms and, and just started yelling at everybody that this isn't what we do here. We don't do this here. We don't fight here. You want to fight? You're going to go to jail. And then, of course, the resource officer would have come over and I would have insisted handcuffs and That may have happened, maybe not. But either way, I would have used it as an example to teach everybody that I'm going to single you out if I see this, and this is what we don't do here. Because that's not what happened. Anytime there was a physical altercation, they would grab the kids, scoop them up, and take them out of the the room. As if it never even happened. Like, oops, there goes Billy, he's been meat-hooked by the resource officer, and now he's gone. But no one would ever use it as a teachable moment and start yelling at everybody that they have a responsibility as students in the building to be vigilant and to prevent things like this from happening. But so do the adults, don't they? Because ultimately the adults are responsible too. This is one of the reasons why they, they couldn't stand me when I was a school teacher. They couldn't stand me because I knew how to do their job better than they did. They operated on feelings, not facts. They didn't have any instincts. They couldn't see the sociological landscape of what was taking place and how that might be dangerous. And then they would always just justify it with, well, we're trying to be their friends and we're trying to, you know, give them the opportunity to quote unquote socialize. Sorry. That's why these, that's, (laughs) that's exactly why these environments are dangerous because you have dummies who run them and can't see the dangers of what happens when you put youth in close quarters with one another with no supervision and no direction. It's going to bring out the worst in some. And again, I saw the aftermath of that altercation in Florida, and it was terrible. You know, you watch these these young kids get their heads bashed on the ground, and then they can't move or they seize up. I mean, it's it's a frightening sight, but my God, vigilance. That's what happens when you don't teach it. Okay, jab stuff. There's a number of things here. I also have three hot-off-the-press peer-reviewed articles as well, but a couple of headlines here. Number one, uh, Pfizer's stock is plummeting. That's nice to see. Not shocking. Kind of a poor business model, wouldn't you say? The whole thing with murder and everything. Either way, there's this quick one. And again, this has to do with the fact that apparently Moderna hired the FBI to secretly police and control online vaccine debate among citizens. Seems like a question that hopefully was asked, although I doubt it. I didn't watch all of Christopher Ray's testimony from last week, but uh, I wonder if he was asked that question. Director Ray. Did Moderna hire the FBI to secretly police and control online vaccine debate among American or other citizens in foreign countries? Seems like kind of an interesting question you'd want to ask, but there was that anyway. There's also this. This also from Natural News, heart failure spiked 1000% among pilots in 2022, so says the Pentagon as their new data shows. So again, this kind of stretches back to the U.S. Navy medical officer who again was on, uh, on video and recorded himself talking about the surge in cardiac problems among enlisted men and women. It's, it's huge. That hypertension has gone up by 2,181%, neurological disorders by 1,048%, multiple sclerosis by 680%, Guillain-Barre syndrome 551%, Breast cancer, 487%, female infertility, 472%, pulmonary embolism, 468%, migraines, 452%, ovarian dysfunction, 437%, testicular cancer, 369%, and tachycardia, 302%. Hmm, what could it possibly be? So here's a uh, peer-reviewed article hot off the presses here. I believe this has to do with three types of COVID-19 vaccine, specifically having to do with aortic thrombosis. So the title is Aortic Thrombosis Associated with Three Types of COVID-19 Vaccine. This is from October 25th. Here's the abstract. Aortic thrombosis has been studied little in patients with COVID-19 and an association has recently been reported with the vaccine for this disease. The aim of the present study is to report 5 cases of aortic thrombosis in our institution within a 3-month period associated with the COVID-19 vaccine. 5 cases of aortic thrombosis were evaluated, 3 women and 2 men, aged 29, 49, 51, 60 and 79 years. Four thrombi involved in thoracic aortic and one involved the abdominal aorta with embolisms found in the kidneys, spleen, liver, upper upper limbs, and lower limbs. Let me get this next one right here. It is, let's see, emblolectomy, if I'm saying that right, uh, was performed. That doesn't sound like a nice procedure on the limbs and an anticoagulant therapy was performed for the abdominal arteries these patients recovered well and anticoagulant therapy was maintained aortic thrombosis is on is uncommon but was associated with the astrazeneca vaccine in this case series hmm well they're all causing that it's not just astrazeneca it's all of them so You know, you got to keep this in mind with these studies is they'll always try to divert attention away from some rather than others, even though it said in the title of the article that all three vaccinations or three different kinds of vaccinations were responsible. Here's another one. This is from PubMed. This was published, let me get you a date here, October also of this year. It is titled, The Effect of Vitamin D Supplementation on the Side Effect of BioNTech Pfizer Vaccination and Immunoglobulin G Response Against SARS-CoV-2 in the Individuals Tested Positive for COVID-19, a Randomized Control Trial. Good God. I got a lot of problems with that title. COVID-19 doesn't exist. SARS-CoV-2 doesn't exist. The tests aren't real. So what are we actually measuring here? What's what's the one revelation from this that is actually factually accurate? That vitamin D keeps a person less ill. That vitamin D, specifically it says supplementation of 600 IU of vitamin D3, can reduce post-vaccination side effects and increase IgG levels in participants who received BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. So if you've taken the jabs, You should be outside in the sun as often as humanly possible, or at the very least, supplementing vitamin D3 as often as possible when you're not getting enough sun. Good to know. Here's the last one. This was published just last month. In fact, almost exactly one month ago in the International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Miscarriage after SARS-CoV-2 vaccination, a population-based cohort study. Here's the abstract. To evaluate the risks of miscarriage following SARS-CoV-2 vaccination while accounting for the competing risk of induced abortion, it says women aged 15 to 50 years with a confirmed pregnancy at less than 19 completed weeks of gestation that was the that was the uh the, the participant selection there and this was out of Ontario Canada the methods involved the following exposure to first SARS-CoV-2 vaccination handled in a time varying manner was identified as one unvaccinated two remotely vaccinated greater than 28 days before the estimated conception date or three recently vaccinated less than 28 days before conception and up to 120 days after conception. The outcome was miscarriage, occurring between the estimated date of the conception and up to 19 completed weeks of pregnancy. Fine gray hazard models accounting for the competing risk of induced abortion generated hazard ratios, AHR, adjusted for sociodemographic factors, comorbidities, and biweekly periods. The results included were 246,259 pregnant women, of whom 34% received a first SARS-CoV-2 vaccination. It says miscarriage occurred at a rate of 3.6 per 10,000 person days among remotely vaccinated women and 3.2 per 10,000 person days among those recently vaccinated, in contrast to a rate of 1.9 per 10,000 person days among unvaccinated women with corresponding AHR of 0.98 or 95% confidence interval. Conclusions. SARS-CoV-2 vaccination was not associated with miscarriage while accounting for the competing risk of induced abortion. This study reiterates the importance of including pregnant women in new vaccine clinical trials and registries and the rapid dissemination of vaccine safety data. Here's why I read this it's remarkably corrupt. They're trying to get the readers of this article to actually believe that there's no difference between a 3.6 per 10,000 person days and a 1.9 per 10,000 person days among unvaccinated women. So more miscarriages occurred among more people who were jabbed as opposed to those who were not jabbed at a rather significant rate, a 95% difference. That's kind of a big deal. It just shows a clear contrast. If you're jabbed, you have a 95% likelihood of having a miscarriage as opposed to someone who is not. And they downplay that. Well, more studies need to be used, and yes, more pregnant women need to take part in more of these trials. Don't worry about that child growing inside of you. They're just a science experiment just like you are. But we need to study more pregnant women. The the one pool of individual that I hope dries up, okay, Have to do with the participants in these clinical studies. Wouldn't it be great if there were no more clinical studies whatsoever? That if they just stopped because they couldn't find any participants? Well, we need pregnant women to sign up for this, so let's go out there and pay some pregnant women and recruit them. And they try to, and they all say no. They all say, Nope, I don't want to participate in this. Are you going to inject me with something? Are you going to give me something oral to swallow? the, The answer is no then what would they do as an entire medical industry? They would either falsify the information the same way that they already are, or they would cease to exist. But again, this was published in the International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So on one hand, again, this is kind of one of the advantages that I have as a result of reading so many academic papers as I have over the years, is that they're telling you in the results the deadly information that exists here but it's in the conclusion where they're like nah not that big a deal yeah miscarriage occurred but there were other risks involved and it's no different than inducing abortion and you know that's it's basically the same thing so what's the problem and yes we need more registries and more clinical trials so that we can talk more about vaccine safety data don't mind the fact that there's a 95% certainty that you'll have a miscarriage if you're jabbed Or that I should say that you have a 95% increased chance, as opposed to if you're not jabbed. This kind of information has been out there for a very long time. And people are just having a very, very difficult time absorbing it or coming to grips with it. Because it would crush the entire business. Now speaking of businesses crushing, let me get to the nursing profession. These two individuals, I'm going to play two clips of two nurses here. Uh, They're going to be a bit long, so bear with them. Excellent storytellers, both of these women. Amazing stories as well. They're they're both awake. They both know what's going on. It's beyond evident that they're still learning. And this feels very familiar to me, uh, this particular audio, certainly where it's taking place. It's what appears to be an RV of some kind. And back in the day, there was a giant uh, YouTube channel. Well, I don't know how giant it was, but I remember watching it many, many, many years ago. And I believe it was called Vaxxed or Unvaxed or something along those lines with a couple of X's in it. And again, they drove around the country in this RV and they would invite individuals onto the RV who had been vaccine injured. And they would ask them, whether they be parents or children or whomever, to talk about their stories and basically testify as to what they've experienced. This particular individual, though, for one of Dr. Mackess's, um substacks here, is a California COVID nurse who, it's titled, Exposed Deadly COVID-19 Hospital Protocols, specifically having to do with remdesivir and the flood of how the jabbed were the ones that were getting sick and how these were the people that were filling up the hospital, certainly within not just the winter months, but all months of the year. And she specifically brings up the summer and I believe June of 2021. She said that's when everybody showing up was by and large jabbed with the COVID shots and where their hospital in the Bay Area of San Francisco would normally be empty. It was packed to the gills. So I'm going to play a great deal of audio from this. I'm going to kick in about seven minutes in. It's a total of 22 minutes long, but uh, I'm, I'm moving forward seven minutes. So I'm just going to play as much of this as I can, and then I'll eventually stop at maybe about seven minutes in total. But you'll get the gist of what it is that she experienced and what she's saying. And and what's cool about this woman, again, former nurse, is that she was actually homeschooled as a child. And she she mentions that. And she says, it could be that When I was in these environments and in this hospital environment that I had worked in for quite some time, I was watching basically all of the cool kids at a stereotypical K-12 school sit at the uh, cool kids table and all do the exact same thing. And I was standing on the outside watching all of this and I couldn't believe that everybody was all doing the exact same thing without question. This right here is a personality trait. This right here is a characteristic of someone who is going to survive. Because they can see what's really happening in society and see what's happening in the landscape, as opposed to somebody who's neck deep and can't even understand what's taking place. So give this a listen here. Get comfortable in three, two, one.
1: Like I said earlier, worked in the Bay Area of California um, for an organization called Kaiser Permanente. And they have a full scope of care. Their, their uh, structure is set up to where you get your primary care, your acute care, uh, you know, the pediatricians, all of the medications and your vaccines all in the same uh, organization. So, with the COVID vaccine, they were administering it at my hospital. So, when uh, in February, so they released the shots, these shots to the practitioners in January of 2021. But They didn't release it to the public until close to the end of February. So by the beginning of March, I was starting to notice that my hospital was becoming slammed. And this is unusual because we get, you know, winter rushes. This is how the hospital works. It's dead in the summer and it's full in the winter. Like this is the cycle. And so I started noticing in March of 21 that it was very peculiar that I was starting to get all these calls to come to work because the hospital was understaffed. And it did not stop. I was in graduate school at the time for my double nurse practitioner degree. So I would do three weeks at the hospital and then I'd take some time off and study for my schooling. Uh, So by June, when I went into the hospital, I was there for three weeks. Uh, three weeks in from uh, March to April, and then another three weeks uh, in the middle of June to the beginning of July. And I was working nonstop. I would work doubles basically every single shift. Uh, I was getting phone calls three times, sometimes four times a day to come to work because they were so understaffed at the hospital. And then in June, my manager approached me and he said to me, Gail, this hospital has had three times more admissions than we have ever had since the hospital opened their doors. So that's a three hundred percent increase in hospitalizations directly associated to the onset of these shots. So you might asking
8: what you were saying, were you're heart conditions always things COVID.
1: Or so and this was actually So during that week, it was the end of June, it was around the 28th of that month when my manager came up to me and said this to me. And during that week, I had mentioned I was working doubles basically every shift I worked. And because of my position, uh, being in grad school, um, I held the position called per diem. So what that means is that oftentimes when I come to work, I end up filling in. I'll float to wherever they need me in the hospital. So on uh, that shift, when my manager had told me that we had had three times more admissions than they'd ever seen, there was that day, the next day I came in and worked a double and I split that 16 hours between two different units. And I got report on every single patient on both of those units. And this is really when it hit me that these were injection injuries because that's about 30 patients per unit I got report on. Every single one was there for some peculiar clot that I'd never heard of, a stroke, a heart attack. I had seen by that day four patients with rapid onset Guillain-Barre. In my entire career, I'd seen two, 10 years as a nurse in acute care. I'd taken care of two patients with Guillain-Barré within a few short week period of time. I'd seen four, and I had the opportunity to ask two of those patients directly uh, what they thought was the cause of the onset of their Guillain-Barré. And two of them did tell me that they had received those COVID shots within 24 hours of onset of symptoms. And when I and so from there, I approached my managers and I said. I have gotten a report on two units full of patients that are all having the weirdest set of symptoms, and several of them are confirming that they've just gotten these COVID vaccines. How can I report this? And my direct manager's response was, we cannot report these because we cannot prove that these are what is the cause, that these shots are what is causing these injections. One of my colleagues who was actually the nurse at the COVID injection clinic, she approached me one day and she will not come publicly to say this because she's afraid of losing her job. But she had asked her manager the same thing and they told her that if she reported a single adverse event, she would be fired. So. We were constantly under pressure not to report uh, all of my concerns regarding the COVID um, protocols for hospitalized patients were, be, were not being addressed. Uh, I mentioned multiple times that I felt like we were violating our oaths. I was ignored. Uh, so it was shortly after that, that time in June of 21 when I had legal documents. Process served to several members of my hospital, and uh, they fought, they fired me in retaliation for trying to hold them accountable for what I was witnessing. but uh, I asked myself a lot, I think that really one of the most important things to really notice here is people say to me like, Oh, like you know why are you coming forward and your colleagues aren't and I want to really recognize here how it is that I ended up in this position because I think that I noticed when this was all happening that there was probably about 30% of my colleagues who saw what I was seeing. Um, And it is, it's like this attention to detail, critical thinking, ability to really deeply analyze what you're seeing, and then continue to dig into why it was happening. And so there are these types of skills in combination with uh, the fact that I was, uh, I, I didn't go to public school in high school, and it really reminded me of that. This whole situation on the COVID floors, it reminded me of how I felt in high school when I was homeschooled and I wasn't with the in crowd. And I saw this happening with my colleagues. I saw them wanting to be with the in crowd. They didn't want to rock the boat, they didn't want to potentially jeopardize their income. They had mortgages, and so they chose to. You know, do what was easy and go along. And I would say to them, this is something that I have found to be the most powerful of all of the things that have happened in the last two years is that I'm free. You know, I, I look at my colleagues and I know that they've sold their souls. You know, they're doing these things. They're jeopardizing their ethics and their morals. Um It's for me, it's just it's been so uh, empowering because I know that my children are seeing a leader, and they will be emboldened by what they have seen me done do. And at the end of life, at the end of the day, these are the things that matter. My paycheck, it's irrelevant. And so I think that's really kind of the takeaway uh, that that I have gleaned from all of this is how free I feel and how happy I am uh, to be able to show my children how to live
0: free. I love it. She's one of the good ones, no doubt about it. Uph- upheld her oath, knew what was taking place, critically thinking about what was happening. Observing accurately the people around her, the patients coming in, she was doing her job. And then again, you you heard her talk about her supervisors and the way that her supervisors were treating her and blindly ignoring people. She's 100% right when it comes to people selling their souls. Immediately. Everybody in one fell swoop over the course of the last three, four years just saw everybody understand that these businesses are fraudulent and that many of the people that work within these businesses are fraudulent. They say one thing, they do the exact opposite. They claim to uphold this and uphold that and we are the highest most moral ethical standard on planet earth and no one is above us and then wh- where are they? They're at the bottom of a septic tank when it comes to morals and values. Again, that could have been Kim Carter's experience. That could have been Kim Carter speaking right there. And that was her experience too. Same thing. So you've heard Kim Carter here on this show. You've heard her. You've heard numerous individuals. We know lots of people where this is the case. These people are not alone. They're everywhere. In all walks of life and in all all businesses. Here's the next nurse that I'm going to play. This next one was an ICU nurse. And this was from a November interview. That last one was a December interview, more recent, but this one is from a month ago. And she again details her COVID 19, quote unquote, pandemic experience and what she witnessed. So give this a listen. This too is about 24 minutes long, but I'm only going to play a little bit of it. So here we go in three, two, one. You worked in the COVID ICA? So
7: I was working in the surgery centers and when in in a hospital, and when the uh, Delta surge came through in August of uh, 2021, they stopped emergent, uh, I'm sorry, non-emergent surgeries, elective surgeries, and so they had to redeploy the staff. They asked people where they wanted to go, and considering I had experience in the ICU, I said, I'll go work in the ICU. So I went to work in a 12-bed ICU.
8: And you did not take the shock?
7: I did not. At that point, people some some people were taking the shot, but I hadn't taken the shot, and I had no intention of taking
8: the shot. Interesting. And so we've had so many stories. As I was telling you, and they're horrific. Yeah. I mean, horrific. Yeah. Can you tell us what you saw when you were in there?
7: What I saw was everyone in the intensive care unit was m- most everyone in the intensive care unit was on the ventilator. Um, there was a series of events that would happen that would put people on the ventilator it was they would get sick they'd come into the emergency room they'd be sent home without treatment they would come back into the emergency room more sick they would um, be admitted be given remdesivir or other protocol meds but mostly um the cdc and the nih protocols was remdesivir and then they would deteriorate they would need high flow oxygen then the high flow oxygen would be a mask then the mask then they would get a medication called presidex and presidex decreases um agitation and doesn't decrease respiratory rate as much as other meds but it is sedating so then they would become agitated and they would get what the nurses called covid delirium they would become more and more delirious. They would pull off their masks. And in that period of time, they wouldn't be getting water. They wouldn't be getting food. Even if you wanted to give them food or water, it was very difficult. Because if you tried to get the mask off to give them food or water, they would dump their oxygen saturations. It was very, very scary. And so there was a reason that people didn't feel comfortable giving food or water, because it was scary. And then if they had IVs, they might pull them out. So they would become very delirious. And then eventually they would end up intubated be intubated on the ventilator, sometimes on 100% oxygen. They would require neuromuscular blocking agents and sedatives to keep them um, not moving. And then eventually they would, most of the time, they would deteriorate and die. And we lost one to two patients a day. And the beds were never um, empty for long we would get another one there was codes all the time people were coming in and coding and ended up in the unit and then they wouldn't live for a couple three four days and then they die and they usually we had a dialysis machine running all the time in the um icu um because of the renal failure people would come in with normal kidneys and then end up in renal failure um that could have been remdesivir it could have been you know renal injury from dehydration and uh, lots of things but protocols. It looked like protocols because it was so consistent. It was consistently happening.
8: Did you as medical professionals ever talk about the fact that these people have been on Remdesivir? We know Remdesivir shuts the kidneys down and you're having dialysis. There wasn't
7: any discussion about Remdesivir at that time because nobody was talking about it yet. Um, I knew that Remdesivir was a bad drug because I was kind of on the I had not I had been suspicious of the entire operation from the beginning, from March 2020. I knew something wasn't right. And so I had been kind of on alternative media and then I had seen Dr. Artis talk about Remdesivir early on when he talked about Remdesivir and the failed studies with Ebola. So I knew about Remdesivir, but people weren't talking about it. Nobody was talking. That was one of the things that was so weird to me. After working in an ICU for so long, I was really surprised at how how little clinical conversation was happening people weren't talking to each other they were just doing what was told as a matter of fact a thing I thought was really interesting as to way the way that people were interacting one of our um, Main doctors had a baby in the middle of all this, and the nurses didn't even know that he and his wife were pregnant. And that, in that situation where people are so together and under such strain and stress, it's just so odd for people to have not been closer. People were not talking. There just was no conversations. And for the first time in my career, I saw doctors being so emotional, and I'd never seen that before. They would shout and and lament about the unvaccinated and how if people just got vaccinated this wouldn't be happening and they would they were awful I've never seen doctors behave that way before they would show videos of how awful it was and how the unvaccinated are the problem and I'd never seen anything they were hysterical (laughs)
8: let's talk for a second about this whole unvaccinated because we've only been on the road three months of which we you know it's only two months of every month we are actually on the road so not very long right and all of the stories so far have been people who did not take the COVID shot Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm went in for whatever reason and got given a cocktail of things. It was report to their loved ones they're starving and no one will, no one's around. We had a lot of that. No yes. one's around. Um, they did not want to be on a vent, did not want remdesivir, but they were and the medical records they get afterwards showed that they were, you know, hysterical, so they were drugged and whatever. And then obviously, you know, the rest went, right. died. Right. What are we what, why are we not seeing anyone who had two Pfizer's? So is, maybe it's because we are who we are and they don't come to us. Did you see anyone that was fully vaccinated that was treated the same way as the unvaccinated?
7: Well, I wouldn't have known that because there was nothing in the medical record that does that. The, so when I would look in a, in a history and physical an H&P, when I would look in there, I would see COVID pneumonia in an unvaccinated host as the assessment, right? The diagnosis and COVID pneumonia. I would never see COVID pneumonia in a vaccinated host. I never saw it once. And I did not work in Epic. So this is hearsay, but there are nurses that worked inside Epic, which is an electronic medical record that said in the dropdown where you would choose COVID pneumonia, there was no dropdown for vaccinated to be chosen Has to go into the medical record to become part of the medical record it would be COVID pneumonia unvaccinated and the next one down on the drop down menu was unknown so everything into the unknown category was categorized as unvaccinated because it wasn't there was no vaccinated the only time that you could find out whether or not someone was vaccinated is if you asked the family and the family wasn't there And also, you have to consider whether or not, in those really dire situations, if you did see family, whether or not you were going to ask them that question, because that's really that's heavy. You know, you just don't walk up to somebody who's losing their family member and say, "Were they vaccinated?" You know, it's just not—it's not appropriate. It's not kind. It's not graceful. It's bad. So sometimes you get an opportunity to ask, but in general, and no one was asking. No one was asking.
0: I'm going to stop it there. That was huge though because there was a consistency, we would call this a trend, between that nurse and the previous nurse because the previous nurse audio, earlier she was describing and or could have been actually later, but she was describing in her in her testimony the epic recording system that you could look up as a nurse and see their medical history. She said that there was a red bar that would show up at the top of their medical history and on that red bar, almost like an emergency alert kind of thing, it only said unvaccinated. So if the individual had not taken the COVID shots, it was evident that they had not taken it and they were immediately told that, but they were never told that they had taken it or that a patient had taken it. And then in her testimony, this woman you just heard, she said that in the EPIC program where they're again selecting what's going on with these people on a computer, that the database wouldn't allow them to check whether or not they were vaccinated. There was just an unvaccinated tab and then an unknown tab and that they, of course, were checking all of the unknowns behind the scenes as being actually Unvaccinated, if I'm interpreting that correctly, the point is is it's fraud. This is national and worldwide fraud, computer fraud, and medical fraud, because the nurses aren't allowed to add in accurate data on what they're seeing with these particular patients, let alone ask them and she herself said it, and so did the previous nurse. They both said. The only way that we could find out if they were jabbed was if they told us or we asked them. And the previous nurse actually says in her 22-minute talk, she says, it was a bit uncomfortable to ask, but at the exact same time, I had no choice, because it was remarkably evident that there were commonalities among all of these individuals. And so I just started asking them, and sure enough, Almost all of them that I was asking, if not all of them, were saying that they had taken the shots. And even some of them would respond back and say, yeah, I took them, and you know what? I had a feeling it was those shots that have caused this. I had a feeling that it was the shots that, that have me in this situation. Uh, again, this nurse, too, the one that you just heard perfectly lays it out. This is why they wanted the distance between the families and the individuals that were being held captive within these hospitals. I'm telling you, this is a level of brainwashing and torture that we cannot forget. And frankly, I'm not going to forgive it either. You cannot forgive something like this. And I'm going to end with this. Here's what the previous nurse said in her, in her last full testimony. You can go over to Dr. Mackis' Substack page. You can listen to both of these in their entirety for free. You don't have to subscribe to his Substack. Just get on a search engine and type in Dr. Macus substack and you'll, you'll see them. But what the previous nurse ultimately said was, she said, under no circumstance should anybody send themselves or a family member to a hospital ever again. She's very blunt about it. Never send them to a hospital ever again. They are unsafe places, if not the most unsafe places that exist. I would invite everybody to keep that in mind going forward here. With that said, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and I'll catch you on Monday. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care, and God bless.